The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. I suppose it's worth giving a list of names. Michael Crichton, C.S. Lewis, Dan Brown, John Grisham, J.R.R. Tolkien, James Patterson, Tom Clancy. The thing that they all have in common is that they've all sold significantly fewer books than my next guest. In fact, I think if you add James Patterson and Tom Clancy together, they still have sold fewer books than Jeffrey Archer. Good morning, Jeffrey. Good morning, Anton. <laughs> Lovely to have you on. You you have released the latest in the William Warwick series, that being Traitor's Gate, and we will talk about that and, of course, talk about a whole lot more. By the way, how is Mary? Very well indeed, thank you. I am glad and to hear it. Much looking, have been looking forward to being on the show again, Anton. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Now, can I, can I uh, pick a small bone with you, which is, it is great that after having written the, I was going to say dozens, but hundreds of books that you have across your prolific career, finally an Irish character is in a central role in one of your novels. Yes, in Traitor's Gate and indeed in all the William Warwick books, Ross Hogan, William Warwick's sidekick, has actually become more popular than William. I'm getting more letters about him and his antics than I am about any other character in the book. Uh, Ross is all well and good, but he's not as significant as the other character from Ireland in this book, that being a young man from Dunboyne by the name of Thomas Blood. Ah, Colonel Blood, the first man ever to attempt to steal the crown jewels in 1671 when he failed. In fact, he didn't even get out of the tower. And he had an interesting run up to it because he attempted to take Dublin Castle before that. Yes, he had an amazing career uh, right through his life. He was either on the king's side or on the rebel's side. He just moved according to what suited him. He was, of course, a complete rascal, but he survived to a great age and even had the king on his side at the end. And of course, the whole um, the the central premise of this book is that somebody manages to do successfully what Thomas Blood never managed to do, which is to pull off a heist of the crown jewels by swapping with an. Exa- I I won't give away the plot, but it relates to the the successful theft of the um, crown jewels, all of which was handed to you. I still find this hard to believe by somebody you met on a cruise. Yes, Mary and I were on a cruise round the British Isles on a Viking cruise, and I was a guest of Tors Hagen, the owner of the Viking cruise, and he sat me next to someone who said, I've just read one of your books, and I can tell you the next story, which I always dread, Anton, because I then say, have you murdered your wife? And if they don't say yes, I say, please get in touch with me when you have. But this man said, which made it even worse, I can tell you how to steal the crown jewels. Sadly, we were only on the soup course, so it looked as if I was stuck with him for an over an hour when he announced quite casually that he was a member of the royal household. He then told me in two minutes, may have been three, how to steal the crown jewels. I couldn't sleep that night, and by the time I'd got back to Southampton, I'd done a 30-page outline, but of course realised immediately the research that would need to go into this book was bigger than I'd ever done before because the timing of the entire heist had to be split-second perfect. 
Now, to the research, this raises an area that I wanted to ask you about because the research involved you going on buses, trains, riverboats, taxis, bicycles, the whole thing around London to make sure that this heist was actually doable. Now, for a man with a lot of time on his hands in his 20s or 30s, you might say, well, you know, it it gives him something to do. But when you're in your early 80s, you might have better stuff to be at. And I saw an interview with you where you said that by virtue of your current age, your perspective had changed significantly and that you had for the first time a fear of death. What's being 83 like when you're Geoffrey Archer? Well, you've hit, I think that is the sentence, that it is a fear of death. Yes, I train twice a week and have a coach. I try to do 10,000 paces a day. My diet is very careful and I hardly drink anything. But, but... I am 83. I'm still loving writing, still enjoying it. But I have a knack. When I read the obituaries every morning in the Times and Telegraph, there are very few people older than me. So naturally, I get, I think, wait a minute, Jeffrey, how much longer have you got? So I, I was up at six this morning writing. I will be up at six tomorrow morning writing. I still love the writing. If I wasn't enjoying it, Anton, I, I'd be doing other things, but I'm still loving it. Does it change the lens that, that through which you look at life? Because one of the things that when somebody, I think sort of 80 is the threshold, when somebody dies in their 80s and 90s, one of the cliches that is always trotted out is they've had a good innings. When you're still playing that innings, do you look at it that way? I couldn't complain because, to use your words, I have had a remarkably privileged and good life. So I couldn't complain. But as I know exactly what the next three books are, and I've done 12 drafts of the next book, I would like to stay alive, please! And is that desire to produce, is it because you have the ideas and you want them to get onto paper or is it because you actually enjoy? Because uh, you and I have talked about this before and I still am hugely sceptical about your answers. I do not understand how you can enjoy a process that runs to between 12 and 20 redrafts. I have to agree. It, it, I enjoy getting the stories on paper. I enjoy the stories coming. But I confess that I had assumed in old age it would get easier. But I'm currently on the 12th draft of my latest book. It isn't getting any easier. I think I'm a better craftsman. But the stories, uh, they are God-given. There's no doubt about that. But the hard work, you don't ever get away with being lazy, Anton. And are you more conscious of your time? Yes, you now count. I, I saw uh, the great director, Sorkesi, said the other day he counts every hour and he's only 80, poor thing. So, uh, and indeed, if I may remind you, uh, the president of the United States is three years younger than me and he's doddering around finding it hard to put two sentences together. Does it cause you also to reflect? Do you spend much time looking back and saying... I wish I had done things differently. Do you have regrets about anything? I think every human being, when he reaches or she reaches a certain age, said, should I have done that differently? Did I make a big bad, did I make a bad decision at that time? That is called what you called it, looking back. 
I think the wise thing is to brush yourself down, say you've made a fool of yourself, move on and get on with the work. The people I find who spend their introspective life looking back are very unhappy people. You've got to stand up and get on with it. Although I always wonder, I think one of the difficult things to do is because we, we tend not to look back at our successes. I, th- I think anyway, I think we tend to look back at our mistakes, not our failures. It's a very difficult balance to accept them as having been wrongs, but not let that be something that causes you to wallow or be depressed. Because the temptation is either to say, I'll ignore them totally, or I'll recharacterize them into being something positive. I think in the end, you look, look, nobody, nobody. I've never met anybody for whom everything has gone right. And when they reached the end of their life, said, I achieved every single thing I wanted to achieve. I've never met said human being. So we all look back at some point and think about things that went right or wrong. But you shouldn't allow that to stop you getting on with what you're doing. So I still get up at six o'clock in the morning. And by the way, I still enjoy the writing process. But in answering your tougher question, it doesn't get any easier. From where does that drive come, Geoffrey? I think my mother, a remarkable woman. I've had the privilege of being involved with three remarkable women in my lifetime. My mother, first and foremost. Second, my wife, of course, who's currently chairman of the Science Museum in Great Britain, the first woman ever to chair a national gallery or museum. And of course, 11 years of working with Margaret Thatcher gave me a work ethic an attitude to work that uh, could could not fail to sink in. I'm intrigued you about the experience with your mother because I had always assumed, and, and forgive me for, for leaping to a conclusion, I had assumed that you had come from uh, an original upbringing of sort of wealth and ease, but that was very much not the case. Your mum had to work a lot. Oh, my mother, after the war in 1945-46, when I was five or six, she was doing three jobs at once to keep me at the school she'd sent me to. She believed first and foremost, you can only give a child a good education. She went on to become a local councillor in Western Supermare and chairman of the Arts Committee, which gave me my love of politics. But yes, she knew what a damned hard day's work was. And were you close with your mum? Very close indeed. Absolutely adored her. I was by her side when she when she died and tried in the later years to give her an easier life as a sort of pathetic thank you for all she'd done in giving me a chance. Out of, out of curiosity, the capacity to give that easier life, did that come from the writing or did that come from ministerial office? Where did you make your first real money? Oh, I'm afraid that's come from the writing. Uh, it's ridiculous. If you are privileged enough to have... Uh, sold 275 million books. It does give you a way of life I couldn't have dreamed of. So when my mother came to London, she used to come up twice a year, the wicked thing. She would stay at the Savoy, tiny little suite that overlooked the river, and then she'd spend most of the time in Harrods or with her friends. (laughs) And then I'd get the bills uh, when she took the taxi back to the train at Paddington to take her to Western Supermare. And I used to ring Harrods. Harrods were very good about this. They rang me when she got on the train and said, she's bought the following things, Lord Archer. <laughs> which, which shall we tick and which shall we cross? And went through the list 
And when I saw she bought the same thing three times, I said, no, I don't think we'll have three of them. I think one will, one will be enough. But it didn't stop me adoring her. There are in life, I think, two things that you're not meant to talk about. One is you're not meant to ask somebody your age. So we've already ticked that box. The other one that we're not meant to talk about is politics. And I feel we should go there as well. We are emerging from a very interesting period in British politics. And you've always been fairly good at at lifting your petticoats above direct uh, commentary on Boris Johnson or any of the 965 prime ministers that you had in that three week period. Um, Do you think things are now improving? Do I think, well, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. Do you think in British politics things are improving? Is normality returning where chaos once was? Well, I think uh, Richie Sunak is a very steady, reliable, honest, decent human being. But I get the feeling on the street, Anton, that 14 years of conservative rule is enough and there'll be a change, as there always so often is in British politics, when people get tired of you. I remember uh, in the days when I was in the centre of the game, we'd been in power for 16 years and they got rid of us big time. They got a majority of 170. I mean, it was a remarkable election result, but it was as much that they were just bored to tears with us as wanting a change. Although, does the same pattern pertain now? I mean, they may have been bored to tears at that time and there may have been significant flashpoint issues, but there was an assumption of competency within the Conservatives. Whereas the last number of years has been, I mean, even you must admit, it's been deeply damaging for the Conservative Party. Yes, and I'm bound to admit to you that I look back on those years when I had the privilege of serving Margaret Thatcher and John Major I look back on the years and I confess took them for granted. I thought that's the way prime ministers behave. That's the way you run a country. I looked at the cabinet and thought, yes, that's the sort of man or woman who should be running a great department of state. And I asked myself, people often ask me now, uh, looking back on it, do you think that's changed greatly? And you, you have to be careful not to look through rose-coloured glasses. But in an honest answer to your question, Anton, I think when uh, I had the privilege of serving, I looked upon people like uh, Douglas Hurd and Lawson and Walker and Heseltine as class individuals. Uh, it didn't strike me that you could reach that high office without being that good. And I fear that may have changed. But, 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 while you pay members of parliament such a small sum of money and you're so rude about them night and day, why would a competent man or woman want to go in the house? I admire anyone who wants to give public service. It's become such an unpleasant existence. Jeffrey, it is, as ever, a great pleasure to uh, talk to you. Thank you very much for taking the time to come on on a Sunday morning because I know there are other things that are, are calling on your time, like the three drafts that you have to work through 975 iterations of. So I'm glad that you were willing to come on. Jeffrey. thanks again. Just say one thing before you go. Of course. I was genuinely very sorry Ireland didn't get through. This was the one I thought where they would be the rugby champions of the world. And it doesn't stop me believing it's still the greatest team in the world. 
Well, I'd say you have won some fans with that one, Jeffrey. You're, you're touching a very still sore point, but I think you're touching it in just the right way. Jeffrey, thanks again. That is uh, Lord Jeffrey Archer, author of Traitor's Gate. And hopefully he'll join us when the next three uh, iterations come out. The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday mornings from 10 on News Talk.